Um, friends, I, I'm not sure whom of you, this is definitely not prescribed watching, but who, whom of you are, are familiar with the New, New Zealand folk band called Flight of the Concords, okay? Um, Michelle, you know it. All right, don't, don't put your hand up too proudly. Uh, so it's, it's this very tongue-in-cheek folk parody band and they but i love them and they 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 made a show about themselves and they pretend to be these new zealand folk parody group which which they are but trying to make it in america and they've got this band ma manager called murray hewitt okay and, and this guy's hilarious and uh they go to murray hewitt and they say um we we need to figure out how we can grow our band because people aren't responding very well. And Murray Hewitt says, I think your problem is you're too political. You write, your, your songs are just way too political. So they ask him, what do you mean? He says, well, when you, when you, write, when you wrote your song about epilepsy among dogs, you are alienating the people who are not passionate about that. And they said, well, we don't understand. He said, so he says, well, it's a little bit like if you write a song that is anti-AIDS, then you're going to alienate all the people that are pro-AIDS. So, so they say, but surely there are no people that are pro-AIDS. So, um, and he says, well, I'm sure there are some people that are pro-AIDS, but it's, it's such a bizarre little dialogue. And the reason I'm, I'm uh, referencing it is because to be pro-AIDS is to be sort of pro-injustice. But yet, the way that we talk about our political enemies, the way we talk about people on the other side of the fence, is as if they are pro-AIDS. They are pro-injustice, right? So, for example, if you are, um, if, 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 if you are on the right, then you see your enemy as this this left-wing Stalinist communist revolutionary who, who just wants to see the blood of the bourgeoisie. And if you are on the right, then you see, or rather if you are on the, on the left, then you see your enemy as this apartheid, nostalgic, neo-Nazi um, skinhead. And that's the picture that you have. They are just pro-injustice. They actually like injustice. I remember seeing, actually this past week, a, a shirt a guy was wearing with a rainbow flag on it and it just said united against hate united against hate in other words if you if you do not agree with us then you must be pro injustice you must be a hater right that's the only way that you can make sense of your political enemies and i also remember seeing a bumper sticker once where uh, it was this it was in sort of in relation to i guess land reform and, and, and everything that's going around farms in this country. And it said in Afrikaans, I can't eat domo slimmark ni marakanum fur. Can you domo slimmark ni marakanum fur, which translates to I can't make a stupid person smart, but I can at least feed him. Sort of reducing the land issue to just idiots. You've got stupid people. Um, and I can't, I can't debate them, but I can at least feed them. That's that's the one thing I can do. So we reduce our enemies to these to, to, to either idiots or just people who are pro-injustice. Now, what's interesting is that whether it's the left or the right, both are equally excited about the word justice, and both are convinced that their enemies are pro-injustice. 
And there's a reason, I think, why we miss each other, why the left and the right miss each other. And there are a number of reasons, but primarily it is because of idolatry. The Bible continuously warns us against idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most frequent commands that we find in Scripture. You shall have no other God but, uh, but God. And if, I mean, this is definitely not exhaustive, but if you look on, on the right, so to speak, then you will see various idols. And most of the time, they are things that we, we don't think are idols. We think we have it in control, but we don't necessarily have it. So I'm using right and left now sort of interchangeably as a, sort of the political spectrum. But I think on the right, the sort of conservative status quo type of people, one of the uh, idols that we have, how's it? Um, one of the idols that we have, <laughs> it's even speaking to the Hadidah, uh, is I think you can just leave it, Gear. Uh, I think people are tired of being scared. Uh, so, so, so I think one of the idols that we have on the right is stuff, materialism. Okay, so there's a there's there's this overemphasis on things, and then the other idol could perhaps be solitude, which is, Gear. I'm just gonna try and move myself a little bit forward so that I can pretend like I'm interacting with these guys, and then when they're sleeping. I can spit on them. There we go. All right. Um, now I can see you guys. All right. So uh, it's, it's also, it's stuff, but also solitude, which is another way of saying it's my stuff. I am an individual. I work for my things and I, I can use it the way that I want it. So I think these are typical idols on the right. I'm not unpacking them, but I think we can... We can look at them. Perhaps another conservative idol is is let's let's just use the term sky. And what I mean by sky is the idea that when we think of our Christian faith, we are supposed to be nice to people. Sure, we are. We shouldn't swear. Um, try not to be sexually too promiscuous. And then the the end result is we live here, and one day we're going to go to heaven, and that's the end of it. So there's this massive dichotomy, this massive dualism between what's up there and what's down here okay so these are probably different idols that we might see on the right on the conservative side and these might be things that we struggle with in here as well on the left i would say an idol is victimhood the valorization of of victimhood i'm not sure if you guys i've I've spoken about victimhood before so forgive me if if this is not new but uh, do you guys remember the first idols that came out in South Africa? Um, who, who, who won? Who won the first idols? I think it was Heinz Winkler. I think he was the first idol. Okay. And uh, what's interesting is if you wanted to win the first idols or the first X Factors or whatever, uh, whether it's in America or whether it's in the US, I mean, they are the same places. Uh, um, whether it's Europe or, or wherever, usually what you had to do is you had to sing well or you had to be attractive, preferably both. Okay, so if if you were less attractive, you had to sing better. If you were um, super attractive, then you could afford a few false notes. But that's that's sort of how it worked. You had to be talented or just attractive, and then that 
sort of changed in the last few years. So if you watch some of these shows, whether it's The Voice or X Factor or Idols or whatever, then they'll say, um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome on stage. And then it's sort of our, um, uh, our person. And it is, Daniel, please welcome Daniel on stage. And then when you think that this person is about to sing or perform, then something else happens. There's this video that's sort of this cutaway. And what do we see? We don't see Daniel singing. We see Daniel in his house. And the music tells us that something sad happened there. And we, we meet Daniel and Daniel tells the story. We were such a happy family. And then one day, my dog died. Um, you know, it was, it was little Flabas. And Flab Flabas ran, ran in front of the car. And... Um, and what was the, the music that was playing in the car was Celine Dion. Um, I, I can't remember the song. But the fact of the matter is, every time I sing, I do it for Flabas. And now, every, all of a sudden, we're back on stage, and then, and then Daniel starts to sing. And why do they do that? Why did they, why did they start doing that in the last few years? Because the only way for us to relate to this person, the only way for us to vote for this person to win this thing, is not based on, on just looks or based on just talent. It is based on, is this person a victim? So that we can relate to him or her in one way or the other. That's just one of the ways in which we've become uh, a, a victimhood culture. And if you will indulge me, let me just double click on that thing, the a victimhood culture. There are different cultures in which we swim, and we don't know it. It's the, it's the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in. And in the, uh, I want to say, in the Western world, 300 years ago, maybe even less, it was an honor-shame culture. You can find an honor-shame culture in many parts of Africa still, in the Middle East as well. And an honor-shame culture, to m reduce its qualities to, to sort of, uh, two things I would say it is that you are very sensitive to any offense that is given to you very sensitive so if somebody insults you or if somebody says something bad against your family name you are hypersensitive because it goes against the honor not only of you but of your whole family all right that's why they used to have dueling have you ever seen movies about that or read about that um, in like in in eighteen hundred America or in the 1800s in, in, uh, in, in England, if somebody said something of, I, I don't think that person is necessarily a, a man of, of repute, then they'll say, okay, well, I'll challenge you to a duel, which is a very strange way of handling conflict, which is let's shoot each other and see you know, who, who shoots first. So they will have a duel because they're super sensitive to, to offense. But what you had to do is you had to sort out your own problem. You had to shoot the person or duel or, or whatever. And then we moved from an honor-shame culture into what is called a dignity culture. And that is to say that I am not going to devalue myself by trying to defend my own honor. I am not going to be that sensitive to offense, to slight. But what I am going to do is I'm going to allow a, allow a third party to deal with these things on my behalf. So in other words, if you attack me and it's slander, then I'm just going to say, okay, well, there's a lawyer and the courts can deal with it. Okay, can you see how you are you you are sending that to a third party? It's it's the government that's going to deal with with this um, attack on your character. But in victimhood culture, something interesting happens. First of all, the same as is the case in honor shame culture, there is a hypersensitivity to any offense that is caused. 
if if you just say something that is wrong, people are super sensitive to whatever is said. But the second thing that's added to that, the way that you fight this super sensitivity is you are constantly appealing to the media, constantly appealing to government to implement laws so that so that you will not experience this kind of offense, this kind of slight. Now, that is sort of a, a very brief sociological background as to what is going on in, in victimhood culture. And I think that is an idol on the on the left especially. I'm not sure if you guys followed this, but just recently there's an actor called Jesse Smollett. Jesse Smollett. Now, I, I don't expect you guys to, uh, to know who this guy is. He plays an empire. I've never watched Empire, but it's a, a series. And, and it, there was a big thing of him being attacked the, just a year or two ago. He was attacked by a Trump supporter with a MAGA-wearing hat, two Trump supporters, and they lynched him. They put a, a noose around his head, put jig over him to make him more white. It's just this horrible racist attack on this Jesse Smollett. And uh, President Biden and Kamala Harris, everybody that's, that's somebody in the U.S. just tweeted their solidarity with this somebody, with this Jesse Smollett, um, who became sort of a household name overnight because of this horrible victimization. And then a police investigation ensued and the whole thing was made up. He hired two guys who evidently were, were black. They just put ski masks on and, uh, and they, they attacked him. And they, they looked at, the, and, and, and they told, well, look, he paid us to do this. It was a setup. Why on earth would you pay somebody to attack you? Unless there's a real currency in being a victim. Are you guys with me? It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of value in our world today when, when, you, are a, when you are a victim. Now, now look... This is, these are some of the, the typical pitfalls that we find on the left and the right, certain, certain idols that we, that we experience. Now, where does the Bible land on the whole issue of justice? Where, where does the Bible land on the whole issue of social justice? Now, I know many Christians are very uncomfortable with the idea of social justice, but we shouldn't, okay? We shouldn't be uncomfortable with the idea of social justice because... The Bible is very serious about justice. Let's start there. But on top of that, any justice worth having is social. <laughs> okay? There's no such thing as asocial justice. That doesn't exist. So um, just because the word has, has uh, sort of derived a, a different meaning in the last couple of years doesn't mean that we shouldn't be passionate about social justice. Social justice is, is as important to us as to uh, anybody who might be shouting it on the left. And uh, there's a passage in particular... Isaiah uh, 58 that I want to read to us that I think is, is, is so crucial in our understanding of, of justice. It says the following, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Beho behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? 
Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is it not, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide your, yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then... You shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Friends, we're going to try and unpack some of this passage. Let me just say this. What this passage teaches us about a biblical approach to justice is, first of all, that it starts with us. If we want to know what is just, it starts with us. It doesn't start with my political enemy. It doesn't tell them, you guys are wicked and you're doing this and this and this. It starts with us. And that we find in the very first verse. It says, declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. So what is, Isaiah, what is Isaiah doing here? He is saying, you guys, we are the problem. We are the problem. That's primarily where he starts. And these days, the prophets are very sexy in um, sort of justice circles. Everybody says, yeah, we need to recapture the biblical tradition of, of justice. Just look at Amos speaking truth to power. Just look at Jeremiah. Just look at Isaiah. Just look at um, Joel. Just look at um, Hosea. You can name them. Look at them just speaking truth to power. And that is fair enough. But they were, by and large, speaking truth to their own power, to their own constituency, to their own people. Okay, You've got a few exceptions, like a Moses and the Jonah. They are speaking truth to another power. But the vast majority of prophets, when they stand up, who are they standing up to? To their own people. And friends, today... I, I, I don't want to be, I mean, I don't want to trivialize this, but it is relatively easy to speak truth to somebody else's political uh, grouping or somebody else's ethical gr- ethnical grouping to their power because you will have a, a fan club behind you cheering you on. Oh, this guy is a warrior. He, this guy is strong. He's just speaking truth to power. It's much more difficult when it's your own people that you are saying, we have gone astray. We are the problem. That becomes a lot more difficult. Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah 58. And he quotes it in the book of Luke. And I I want to read it because I think the context in which he quotes it is incredibly telling to how we should understand this. All right. So in in the book of Luke, chapter 4, from verse 18, he, this is his first sermon that we see in his hometown of Nazareth. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
and all spoke well of him. So at this point, they're very excited. He just quoted I, Isaiah, the oppression um, that, that, that the Lord will break the oppressor. Okay? That's interesting. So they all love him. And then he continues and he says, and, and, so, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. All right. And then he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do ye in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Let me just stop there for a second. There's a proverb that says, No prophet is acceptable, is accepted in his hometown. Why do you think that is true in the biblical tradition? Why would a prophet not be accepted in his hometown? Because he speaks against it. He's brave enough, he's got the guts to speak against his hometown, against his home people. That's why that, that phrase exists, because he can stand up to his own people, to his own family, to his own constituency, whatever you want to call it. And then Jesus goes on and he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to a brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. <laughs> okay, so that escalated quickly. Why? Well, they just spoke well of him three or four verses ago. They spoke well of him because they marveled at his gracious words. And then, two examples later, they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because a prophet in true biblical prophetic tradition turns around and he says, Okay, you guys like me? That's great. Whatever. But let me just tell you this. That I am going to show you God's mercy to the pagans. He references two oppressors of Israel, the people of Sidon, and then the Syrian, Naaman. These are people that oppressed the people of, of, of Israel. And he says, and God was merciful to them. God did good things to these people. And these people are, they, they, they won't have it. They, 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 they can't take it. Why? Because at that moment, they are so, so passionate about the injustice of the Romans and the fact that God will come and liberate us from these evil Romans, they do not want to hear anything about God's mercy to oppressors. Not to the Assyrians, not to the Romans, not to the people of Tyre and Sidon. We don't want to hear anything about those people. And they are vengeful and wrathful. Here's the point, friends. If you want to understand what biblical justice looks like, it starts with us. You know, charity begins at home. You've heard that, that, that line. I'm afraid justice begins at home as well. <laughs> justice begins at home. That is where we need to start if we, if we want to be truly just. Of course, I have to quote C.S. Lewis. I, in my contract, I'm obliged to quote him every now and then. So he says the following. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that someone turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true. Uh, might not be quite true or not quite so bad as, if, as, if it, as it was made out to. Is one's first feeling 
thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment? And even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible. If it is the second, then it is, I'm afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. Does that make sense? If you... If, if, if there are people you don't like, your political enemies, your racial enemies, your enemies at work, this can be gossip between uh, you know, normal people. If your first inclination when you hear something about them and it's bad is, oh, tell me more. And when it's good message, then, oh, no, no, I'm going to cling to the bad news. If you, if you don't nip that in the bud, if you don't stop that, what your view of justice is will just end up in, ending in revenge. What, what you call justice will just be another name for revenge. And you will turn into the devil that you claim to be fighting. Are you guys with me so far? I think that's the first point that, that Isaiah 58 is trying to teach us about, um, about justice. The second point is, and it's related to the first point, is just self-deception. I've never met a white Christian. I've never met a black Christian. I've never met a Zulu or an Afrikaans Christian who are not convinced that God is on their side. All convinced God is on our side. The Jews were no different. Just notice in this passage, let me just try and find um, Isaiah 58 because uh, Gior rudely took away our, our screen here. Um, just, just notice some of the, the words here. So, so Isaiah is, prop, is, is being proper sarcastic. Okay, He says, oh, you seek me daily, all right, and you delight to draw near to me. All right, you bow down your head like a reed. You 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 spread like sackcloth and ashes on them. These are all the religious things that you guys are doing. These people are proper church-going people, much better than you guys, I might add. They they are there every day. They are fasting. They are praying. They are reading scripture, and God says, "You guys are the problem. You guys are a mess. You guys are the bad guys." You are the bad guys. Don't think you're the good guys because you are so ridiculously religious. As a matter of fact, this is, this is just rank hypocrisy. Again, in the days of, 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 of Isaiah, they were so convinced that the only oppressor, the only bad guy here is the imminent Assyrian threat. The Assyrian Empire was rising and they were on their way to, 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 to zap them. And in the day of Jesus... The Jews were convinced the only oppressor here is, it must be the Romans. But they weren't aware of how they were oppressing their own workers. Likewise, the Jews were not aware of how they were oppressing the Samaritans, which is why Jesus continuously told stories of Samaritans and where they are the good guys. So our victimhood blinds us to where we become the, the oppressors. All right. Now, friends, why is oppression wrong? I want to move on to a third point, I think, of biblical justice. So the first one was justice starts at home. The second thing is that this passage teaches us is that beware of self-deception. You can clothe it in so much uh, religiosity. I'm really praying for you. I've got, a, I've got a friend who lived in Cosmo City, which is a, uh, which, which is a township not far from here. Anne is, is visiting us today. She lives in, in Mamalodi. And this friend of mine comes from an Afrikaans family. And... Uh, uh, and she decided to live in Cosmo City and to do sort of social type work there. And you know what her parents' reaction were? They called prayer meetings for her on her behalf 
just so that she can come to her senses, so that God will convict her and speak to her. She is serving the poor. She is, she is making a massive sacrifice. What's her parents' reaction? These good old nice Afrikaans, Enchiat women, Tani. Pray for our daughter, Lord. Please show her the way. <laughs> you know, you can very easily um, convince yourself that this is God's, word, God's will, but it is, it is just an, an absolute injustice. The third point that I think this passage t- makes in terms of what a biblical justice looks like is the reason why we oppress other people is because we, we, we don't identify them as in, made in the image of God. We don't identify people as made in the image of God. And it sounds so obvious. Oh, you are, everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody's valuable, blah, blah, blah. But the, the passage specifically references it in Isaiah 58 verse 7 where it says, um, why do you do this to your own flesh? Why do you do this to your own flesh? Let's just try this for a second, guys. I know that we say God values everybody. Everybody's made in the image of God. But just look in your heart of hearts and think, do you really relate to the world that way because the way that i measure somebody's value if i'm perfectly honest with myself has got to do with their economic standing their social standing how they present themselves all of these things uh, ensure that i behave differently if if somebody gets out here with a massive land rover and they come here and they are attractive and they're charming whatever then I'm going to make sure, hi, how are you? Welcome. You're so welcome here. I mean, you are super welcome here. Please you know, have the best coffee that we have uh, available there. And we've had a couple of bums here walking in. They're not quite sure if they're allowed in or what's the story. Um, they often stand by themselves. I wonder if the reason why we allow something like that to happen has got to do with we do not really believe God when he says that everybody's made in the image of God. When I, when I, there's a guy I drive past every day almost. It's a beggar. Um, he's, he must be a drug addict. He's a white guy, always staring into a dustbin. And look, I mean, it's it's very difficult to deal with 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 drug addicts and 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 just uh, homeless people in general. It, it's it's a very tough sort of uh, place to to try and make a difference. But I'm not moved by that guy. I I, I think. The way in which he has diminished his image of God because he's not valuing himself, I think has affected me as well. But yet, a biblical justice does not allow that. We really need to identify people, our enemies, absolutely, as made in the image of God, but also people that society has forgotten, people with no economic value, with no social value. We need to remind ourselves that they are made in the image of God. The way we pay people, just think of that. I let me share this story because I think you can handle it. But given just the horrible history that we have in this country, I've got a friend who's a, a pastor in, a, in in north of Pretoria, and he's got a lot of poor whites in his church. So these are people that haven't worked for 10, 15 years. They they are poor, but sort of relatively poor. But um, but they need assistance from the church. So they asked us. They, they, they offer to help this guy. Um, he's never had a job in the last you know, decade or so. So they say, you can, you can paint the palisade of the church. 
okay? And now they, they, they're on the church council, they say, look, let's give this guy something extra because he's, he's struggling and it'll be good for him to work. Let's just give him something extra. So, so they say instead of a thousand rand, which they can get somebody to do this, we'll pay him two thousand or three thousand rand. It'll be good for him. On the Saturday when he's supposed to, to paint the palisade, uh, my friend pitches up and there he sees him sitting on a plastic chair under a tree. And what's happening? There's a guy in front of him who happens to be black painting the palisade. So he goes to him and says, why? why is it? Because this guy's young, man. He's in his 40s or something like that. Why are, why are you sitting here? Why is he painting, painting the palisade? And the guy, without even skipping, skipping a note, just says, I'm not going to do a boy's work. I'm not going to do a boy's work. Painting a palisade, that's a boy's work. I think... And he probably, so he subcontracted this guy. This guy who hasn't had a job for 10 years subcontracted this guy. Probably paid him nothing. Why? I think, I mean, there are a lot of problems with that person. and He needs some serious discipleship and church discipline, as a matter of fact. But I think he lacks to see the image of God. This is a work that somebody does that is made in the image of God. This is a work somebody does that is expendable. We must really ask ourselves. I mean, that is a gross example. It might not apply to us. But I think if we look in our hearts of hearts, it will apply to us somehow, somewhere. Maybe not in such an extreme level, but I, I think we need to, we need to look at it. The, the Bible is just full of wisdom. If you want to just, just look at a great equalizer, uh, th- this would have been more eloquent if I was able to show you guys on the screen. So just forgive my uh, sort of uh, patchy sermon. All right, and just forgive in general, it's a good Christian practice. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse 2. If you want to know um, why you shouldn't be impartial, you, you, should, you, sh- you should be impartial, right? You should be impartial. You sh- yeah, yeah. Why you should be impartial is Proverbs 22 verse 2. The rich and the poor um, are made by God. Sorry, let me just read it here. The rich and the poor are, ma- are both made by God. The Lord is the maker of them all. The, the, no, sorry, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Both rich and poor, the Lord is the maker of them all. It's just a little, little stab or smelling salts to just wake us up. We, we have this in common. We are the same people. All right. The, the fourth point I quickly want to, want to get at is, is, is this, in terms of trying to understand what is a biblical justice. In verse 8... There's this line, righteousness shall go before you. The Lord of the the, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Um, we, we're back in the Isaiah 58 passage, and the reason why we have that is it is a reminder. So, so in other words, if you guys do what is right, then you will be following God. Righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Those are images that the Israelites would have been all too familiar with. Um, that is what they experienced in. In the wilderness, when they were following God, you know, out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they were following God. And it's a very important aspect, I think, of, of biblical justice. Let me say this. Our job as a church is not to make, to change society. It's not to start off by saying, we need to have this project and this project and this project, and that's how we're going to change society. The church works differently. The church says, we have to make disciples of Jesus. We have to follow Jesus. But when you are a transformed person, 
then you start to transform society. Okay? So it's not from the outside, we're just going to try and fix that systemic problem or fix that systemic problem. That will happen. But our strategy is that we need to allow God to transform us and then we are in a position to transform society. Do you guys understand that distinction? That is why Jesus calls us primarily to be disciples first. Because if you're a disciple, you are very close to God in the same way that the, the Israelites were very close to God. They were following him. In the New Testament, the disciples, the new Israel, they are following um, Jesus. What happens is it changes the way we think about various things. So let me give you one example. We, when we follow Jesus, we see things differently. And the, one of the primary things that we see differently will be money. And most of the justice things that we are fighting about mostly boils down to money, by the way. How we should relate to money. We cannot agree on money, whether it's the left or the right. Our radical capitalist individualism says, money belongs to me. It's my money. I can do with it what I want. You can't tell me what I can do, what I can do with my money. I can't tell you what you must do with your money. That's the radical individualism. Let's call it the right again. What about socialism? It says, your money belongs to the... State. The state owns your money. Okay? What does Christianity say? What does biblical justice say? What? Well, not, not in this context. In this context. And I mean, we also get there. But Christianity says, your money belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It also doesn't belong to the state. It's neither socialism or this radical individualism. It belongs to to God. And there are so many places that, that, that says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it, just, it doesn't only relate to, um, to, to money, it relates to all of our things. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? So stop behaving like you didn't receive it. <laughs> okay? What do you have that you didn't receive? So stop behaving like you didn't receive it. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. Whether it's a little or a lot, it is a gift. Now here's the, here's the thing. Jesus constantly uses, I mean, at least yeah, on a couple of occasions, he, he uses the word, when he tells stories about money, he uses the word steward. What's a steward? A steward is somebody working for a landlord, and he's got a lot of money, and he's got a lot of people working under him. Okay, As far as his subordinates are concerned, he is the boss. But the steward knows he is not the boss. The landlord is the boss. And we are stewards because a steward is a master and a servant at the same time. So if you want to understand your relationship to money or everything that you have, your social capital, your resources, your house, your, your skills, your talents, whatever, you are a steward. You are the master of it. Yes, it's been given to you. It's yours. But you're a servant. Don't get too cocky about it. All right. Now, there are wonderful... <laughs> passages in the mosaic law that illustrates this just just this biblical understanding of how we should relate to to, to money so uh, again just allow me to read you a couple of verses from deuteronomy we don't often visit deuteronomy we're a little bit scared of deuteronomy um, so in deuteronomy 24 we we see something interesting in the mosaic law and i think it relates to how we should deal with uh, how we should do with money. So it's uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to 22. I am one page away, and then I turned five pages, and so I'm now 
have to go back. Okay. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless or the widow. Um, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. So this is an agrarian society, right? So we can't necessarily identify with this completely. But here's something interesting. If you want to understand that, that Hebrew that says, this shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. You know what, is, what, what that word can better be translated as? It belongs to them. It's theirs. They own it. They are the owners of, of your leftovers. That's on your, that's, that's, that's on your field. So the, the Israelites were not allowed to, to, um, to plow, or no, rather to harvest the side of their field. Because it's for the sojourner, for the fatherless, for the widow. We don't live... We, we, at least we don't. We are not, you know, sort, sort of in an agrarian society, so it's different for us. But it means that a, a, a big portion of your money does not belong to you. That's the point. And when you give, by the way, and I, I think this is fascinating, and just try and wrap your head around it. When you give, you are not always being generous. It's not you being merciful. It's justice. <laughs> if you subscribe to Jesus... And what he says, if you give, it's not like, oh, Johan, you're so amazing. You are so generous. No, you're just being a steward. It's justice. It was theirs to begin with. <laughs> it belonged to the poor to begin with. Do you guys get that, 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 that distinction? That's biblical justice, friends. It's, it's, not, uh, it's, it, it, it's not that easy to listen to. So when, again, if we go back to our, our um, Isaiah 58 passage, verse 7 says, when you share your bread and you help, you are not being nice. You are not being this uh, philanthropist. That's just justice. You're just being a steward. You, you shouldn't even get a high five for it. You know, it, it, was, it was theirs to begin with. That is the, a, a different way of seeing money when we become disciples of, of Jesus. Again, friends, when we think of how we fight about uh, uh, justice issues in this country and uh, across the world one of the the main things is that we when we look at at why we have the problems that we have we are very reductionist about it okay what do i mean what do i mean by reductionist about it well we we, we think that especially the people on the right would say people are poor because they make bad decisions because of individual choices and you know what? The Bible agrees with it. It says in Proverbs 23, 21, the drunkard and glutton will come to poverty. Okay, so the right is correct. And then the people on the left will say, no, people are poor because of bad social structures. And then we, we just go 10 chapters back to Proverbs 13. And it says, Proverbs 13, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So what is the Bible saying? Is it social structures? Or is it individual responsibility? Yes. Jan says yes. Right? We don't have to reduce things to the one or the other. We can embrace complexity, which is important. We cannot oversimplify these issues. 
which happens all the time. South Africa is in a bad state or we, the country is struggling. Why? Because the, the ANC is doing this and, and uh, they've got this communist manifesto that they are following and that's the only reason why. It might be part of it, sure. But you can't reduce everything to that. So if we want to follow Jesus and we want to uh, uh, awaken a biblical um, justice imagination, then we have to embrace complexity. All right, that's the one point. Maybe a last point that I want to make is, uh, is, is, is this, and this is more a suggestion than it is, I think, mm, like b- biblical in, 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 in any, uh, I don't know, stringent sense of the word. But I think a way of addressing social, a way of addressing social injustice, a way of, of living a just life, we should not try and engage with these issues on an international level or on a national level. We should just do it on a local level. So what I mean by that is, you are not going to change, probably not going to change society with a petition or going on social media and just sharing this and sharing that. Most of the time, I think biblical change is more interested in what you are doing on a local level. Jesus told about, talked about this when... Um, he talks about this banquet, and let's say, he says, instead of inviting all the, the fancy people, instead of in- inviting all of the, the rich people who can return your favor, invite the poor. Bring them to your banquet, all right? That's, that's what you need to do. It's on a very local level that you are supposed to, to do this thing. And then, I think what happens is beautiful, because you are actually addressing social issues in the process. Because most of the time, I've noticed... That my biggest gift that I can give to poor people is my network. Is the fact that I can maybe connect them with this person who can give them financial advice. Or this person who can perhaps give them an internship. uh, Talk to this person if you're interested in that kind of job. And, And that happens when you invite them into your social circles. Right? So, so, so I, I would urge us that a, a biblical justice starts on, at the local level, I, to, to, to now try and fight you know, some of these things that they are tr- discussing in Parliament, maybe, maybe not, but I don't think that's where we should put all our energy. We must start here, yeah, local level. You, dro- you drove past the security guard on your way in, who, who's attending this church when he's off in the evening. He's, he's a guy in, in, in need of help. Not necessarily a handout. Can be, it, it, it can be much more than that. It can be advice. It can be discipleship. Something along those lines. All right. And then, friends, the last bit in our Isaiah 58 passage says, When you do justice, when you do these things, then you will be a light and your light will rise in the darkness. Your light will rise in the darkness. We become disciples. We follow Jesus. We don't care about changing society. But as soon as we follow Jesus, we become disciples, we change the way we think about money, we change the way we, we really start thinking about the image of God, we, we, we really stop oversimplifying, we really st- stop villainizing, we start with ourselves, we do all of those things. And you know what happens? You become the light that this world desperately needs. Friends, politics and justice issues have dominated Uh, our discourse for the last couple of years and I think people are fed up with it to be honest and the world is desperately looking for an alternative a third way 
I think they're tired of the right wing shouting and the left wing screaming. They're looking for a third way. The only way that we can give it, give it to them is if we are the light. And the only way for us to be the light is if we follow the light, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we realize that we so often fall short of this command to be the light. We, even when we try our best and uh, we, we clothe what we do with so much religiosity, even then we oppress in ways that we are not even aware of. It is our prayer, Lord, as a community that you will make us aware of where we are the problem, that we will start justice at home, that we will take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eyes, that we will start there. Lord, it is our prayer that we will not fall into the typical pitfalls that we see in this discourse at the moment between the left and the right and the culture wars and, and all the nonsense that's happening online. I pray that we will be an alternative, Lord, a third way. Lord Jesus, help us to really reorientate our, our minds, our lives, uh, that when we, when we really start to follow you, we will see other people differently, we will see ourselves differently, that we will see money differently, and that we would really be little lights wherever we go. And the purpose of that, Lord, is not to be cute ourselves, not to be congratulated, because it's just justice. <laughs> when we are generous, we are not being kind or good for our own sakes, and we don't deserve a tap on the back. We are just doing what you command us to do. The only way, Lord, we know that we're going to change the society is if we change ourselves, and we just start one step at a time to follow you. Help us in that endeavor, Lord. But, Lord, finally, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the one who came, who was the light to the world, who suffered so much oppression, who suffered so much injustice, but turned it around into a, a force that fights oppression and injustice, but in a, not in a secular way, but in a truly biblical way. We thank you for that, Jesus. Amen.